Welcome to Have You Heard the AABP Podcast. My name is Dr. Fred Gingrich. I'm the Executive Director of AABP. This podcast is sponsored by Elanco Animal Health. More calves, less stress. That's what Virus Shield from Elanco delivers. It's a cattle vaccine that provides more than just coverage against up to 13 respiratory and reproductive diseases. It also protects your herd without impairing preg rates. Research shows the VirusShield line of cattle vaccines can be given to any cow, anytime, and not negatively impact preg rates or reproductive performance. Also, you can stress less and produce more. Talk to your veterinarian about incorporating VirusShield into your herd health program or learn more at VirusShield.com. Our guest today is AABP member Dr. Philip Jarden. Philip, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself, please? Yep. Thank you, Fred. Uh, yeah, my name is Philip Jarden. I'm a 1986 graduate of Iowa State University. I've uh, been in uh, different roles in my career from uh, private practice to academia. Uh, the last 10 years, I've been with uh, Elanco Animal Health. Great. And we're talking about a, an important topic today, uh, and that's our day one of uh, a dairy calf's life, and uh, that's uh, the importance of giving that calf colostrum. So we're going to walk through uh, the importance of that first colostrum meal, but also more importantly, uh, Philip's going to offer some tips about how veterinarians can get involved in that total colostrum management program, program doing colostrum audits. And so Philip, let's start by reviewing some of the basic facts about colostrum, such as the importance of the amount and the timing, and then maybe some reasons, remind our listeners, what are the reasons that uh, that amount and that timing is so critical to that calf's life? Yeah, sure. So uh, cows kind of have a unique uh, placenta. The fancy word for it is syndesmacorial, and that's a mouthful. Uh, and I don't use that term when I'm talking to producers or, or, or uh, their employees. I just explained that the placenta in a cow is formed in such a way that antibodies don't transfer over the, to, the, to, the, uh, to the calf. In other animals, it does. Uh, but a calf is born totally devoid of any antibodies floating around. And so it's very dependent upon the colostrum, that very first milk. And the gut starts to close down to the absorption of that colostrum almost right away. And by 24 hours, it's pretty much zero. And the first food that hits that um, gut starts that process to uh, slow down that uh, absorption of antibodies. So it's really important that the first thing the calf gets is really good, clean colostrum. Yeah, and then we look at that by, uh, you know, measuring IgG. Uh, and there's a variety of mechanisms to do that. Let's talk a little bit about what can veterinarians do to assess uh, that, what we call passive transfer. Yeah, so there's several tests you can do. I think the most common that's done is total protein, which is an indirect measure, uh, but it's probably the most practical and can be uh, taught to almost anybody on the farm to do, and you can set up a farm to do it or your clinic can do it. Um, you can also test for IgG directly. There's kits you can buy for that or send it to a lab. But I think most people have become very comfortable with the total protein uh, method of doing it. Um, as far as guidelines, uh, that, that varies. And I kind of like to look at a dairy and see where they are and then hopefully get them to improve rather than uh, have hard and fast rules. But in general, we want greater than 90% to have greater than 
10 milligrams per milliliter or grams per liter of uh, IgG circulating in the blood. And, and how does that relate to if we're looking at a refractometer uh, on the proto, total protein scale, uh, what do we want to do as far as or what, what are our goals for total protein in calf serum? And also, can you talk a little bit about when that should be measured and then a tip for how to calibrate that refractometer? Sure. Uh, yeah, so there's a recent article in Journal of Dairy Science that uh, was written by a who's who list of a bunch of really smart people that think about these things uh, <laughs> that was pre- uh, published last year. And they ca- now classify it into four categories of excellent, good, fair, and poor. And their their categories are greater than 6.2, and that's grams per deciliter for the total protein, <clears throat> is excellent. 5.8 to 5, 6.1 is uh, good. Fair, 5.1 to 5.7, and then poor is less than 5.1. Uh, when I was in vet school, we learned uh, less than 5 was poor, 5 to 5.5 was yeah. a borderline, and greater than 5.5 was good. So our standards have gotten better. We've gotten better at doing this, and uh, we now have higher uh, higher standards. Uh, I think, yeah, some, well, one tip I'd like to point out is that some people, especially when they're using the uh, – handheld refractometers that you see the light line, the, the blue line through, that, that'll be calibrated wrong. That should be calibrated uh, with distilled water, and that should be a specific gravity of 1.000, not a total protein of zero. And if you make the total protein of zero, you can artificially raise uh, your values up. So uh, I've, I've seen that three or four times now in my career, and uh, just a little tip to make sure that's not happening on your farms. Yeah, so that's a great tip for our listeners, and that is one way that you can get involved in that calf monitoring and management program is make sure you or your producers are are checking total proteins on calves. Very important and easy to implement, so would encourage all of our listeners to consider how they can do that on their uh, client farms today. Uh, you know, uh, Philip, you're you know uh, uh, Dr. Mark Hilton pretty well, and I do too, and I did a podcast with him called Stop Chasing Bugs, uh, and, and I think often as veterinarians, we get trapped into, we have a disease outbreak, scours uh, in, in newborn calves, and we always want to, you know, uh, identify what's the bug that's causing this problem, and we also look at, you know, we're looking at, uh, we hear from members that, oh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm losing uh, the opportunity to provide some traditional services to our farms, but I really think that we have to look at what we can offer our dairy farm clients, and I think this is a really great role for us where we don't necessarily look at bugs, but we look at that whole program. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree with Dr. Hilton. Uh, Two of my important mentors in my career have been uh, Dr. Walt Guterbach and Dr. Chuck Holmberg. Uh, when I first started the residency at UC Davis, and they they taught me that. I was very proud of the fact that I knew which diseases calves got and what age they got, because I learned that in vet school. And uh, they told me I could pretty much forget that. (laughs) And and instead, look at the important things that that lead to all those diseases. Um, So pretty common we see the five C's C's of, uh, of calf management, colostrum, calories, cleanliness, comfort, and consistency. And pretty much all diseases that calves get are caused by failures in some of those systems. 
Yeah, and that's that's so true. And I really think that veterinarians are are really set up to troubleshoot issues with colostrum management, uh, evaluate colostrum programs, and monitor the success of those programs. So, talk a little bit about you know what veterinarians can do there. Well, one of the first things to do is just be present and just watch. Uh, it's amazing what you see uh, just by being there and watching harvest and uh, and uh, measuring and storage and then feeding of the colostrum. Um, and just be there and be, be the friend and the, the uh, advisor to the, to the workers. Uh, uh, there's a term, go to the gimba, which is a term that uh, Paul Rapnicki taught me when I was uh, taking a class from him. And it was on, uh, which means go to where the work is done when you really want to solve a problem. Um, so there's several things to, to watch for there. There's just the procedures, you know, just how clean they are. Uh, one thing I see pretty regularly is bringing 10 cows to milk, all of them that get that fresh in the last eight hours or so, and they'll give them all oxytocin, and then they'll milk them all one at a time. So there's, there's things veterinarians can do. They'll just be just by watching things like that that don't make sense. You know, If they're going to use oxytocin, you know, it should be given immediately before they uh, milk the cow. Uh, and then just how clean they are. How clean the equipment is, that's an important thing to look for. Um, and then helping monitor the, the temperature of the colostrum. The, when it's harvested, it needs to get cold fairly quickly. It's important to have the, the colostrum be really clean. Um, one, one guideline is to have less than 100,000 colon form units and uh, of, t- of total, total bacteria and less than 10,000 of, of coliforms. Yeah, and there's there's uh, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some of those quality control measures that veterinarians could participate in. I really agree with you, Philip, about you know just watching what happens on a farm, and then you can identify, you know, some really sometimes just blatantly obvious areas where you can make some very simple recommendations to help those workers uh, improve, help those employees improve uh, calf and cow care. So that, that just really, I think, uh, is a reasonable approach for anything that we do on beef and dairy operations. So uh, I really like that go to the gimba, and I'm going to use that. So it really seems like there's so many steps in the process uh, from harvesting to feeding colostrum. And lots can go wrong. And I've, uh, I read something that you sent me about the five Qs uh, of a colostrum management program. So maybe talk a little bit about what those are. Yep. So I stole that from Sandra Godden, one of my heroes in colostrum management things. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, so the first one is quality. And we pretty much want greater than 50 grams per liter of IgG. And there's several ways to test that. Uh, We'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, quantity, their cafe needs to have a much, you know, it needs to have enough of the uh, antibodies. So obviously we need to feed enough colostrum. And we typically think of four quarts or about a gallon or four liters is about the uh, amount we need to feed the calves. Well, it depends on their size, uh, but for a regular Holstein, four quarts is uh, about right. A quickness, we usually mean one to two hours. Uh, we don't mean minutes, uh, and we certainly don't mean days. Uh, by 24 hours, it's totally locked up, and even by six hours, the ability to absorb has really decreased a lot. So probably within a couple hours, calves should get their, their dose of colostrum. Um, and squeaky clean, which I 
I think Sandy was pretty clever making the uh, the Q the second letter of that uh, one. Um, we typically think of a hundred thousand calling form units, uh, but, but the lower the better. And you think about how fast uh, bacteria repop uh, reproduce in uh, in warm in, in warm environment. If you start at a hundred thousand in twenty minutes, you might be at two hundred thousand, and within an hour or two, you're over a million. So it's really important to get the colostrum cold quickly. Um, Quantify, which is setting up a, a system for actually testing the calves to make sure that they're uh, they have enough antibodies in their in their system. So normally that'd be done waiting. The calves are twenty four to forty eight hours old, and uh, taking a blood sample and checking for total protein. And then I'm going to add one that's not a Q, and that's temperature of feeding. Mm-hmm. I remember growing up on my dad's little dairy farm in Iowa. We'd go feed the calves in the winter or the summer. We'd mix up the milk replacer with our hand and stir it up. It, it's warm. It's good enough. Uh, and I can tell you, your hand gets calibrated differently, whether it's uh, 10 degrees below zero outside or whether it's 80 degrees outside. And it's really important to get those calves fed uh, their colostrum and their milk at uh, uh, close to body temperature. I like to get it between 100 and 105 degrees. Um, and I've seen it on farms that monitor that they say, oh yeah, we check that. And you find out that the, the thermometer is broken. So they can't tell you that day how they do it. And you'll see that they don't shake it up all the time. And I, I've checked, checked that. And on dairies that really thought they were measuring the, the, uh, the temperature because we're getting t- colostrum from anywhere from 85 degrees up to 127 degrees. That's hmm. uh, a little quality control thing that veterinarians can help, uh, help with the system. That's a great tip. And, uh, you know, 100 degrees is pretty hot water, uh, uh, hot colostrum uh, to our to our touch. So uh, great tip. Make sure you guys are, are, are checking temperature uh, of colostrum and milk and milk replacer that is that is going to the calves. Uh, we don't want to make them hypothermic uh, from their meal. Uh, so make, make sure we're doing that and, and to, to improve uh, uh, your colostrum management program. Let's talk about quality first. Uh, Philip, so you know we, you said you want greater than fifty uh, grams per liter of IgG in the colostrum. So, um, what are some things that impact that? Such as you know when we look at the at the transition cow and we're trying to get uh, antibodies into the colostrum. Uh, what are some things in that transition cow program that can influence that? Well, obviously the nutrition and the environment whether the cow's under heat stress or not. And there's a pretty good indication that there's, there's seasonal variation, maybe a little bit harder to get high quality, uh, enough high quality colostrum in the fall. Uh, but there's things we can do with cow cooling and uh, uh, making sure the animals got the right nutrition load and all those things, not too much and not too little. Um, the Goldilocks approach, that kind of thing with uh, like Dr. Drake Lutatis. Um, then there's also... Timing of vaccines can be helpful. So the things we know these calves might be exposed to, um, especially the first couple of weeks of life that, that cause scours, uh, boostering that cow's immunity with something like scour boss mm-hmm. can really help us uh, decrease the incidence of those diseases uh, in that first couple of weeks. Very important. Uh, another opportunity for veterinarians. Uh, I find myself when I did nutrition consulting in practice, 
you know, really looking at a transition uh, program is a really great way to initially get involved because oftentimes we see the health effects of those poor, uh, you know, management programs in the transition count. It's not all dietary related, as Philip said. Uh, you know, environmental conditions, pen moves, things like that can all influence the success of that transition program. Great place for veterinarians uh, to get involved. So we talked a little bit about IgG concentration goals for colostrum. How is that? How do we measure that? I've heard that, you know, a cow that maybe gives a, a, a very large amount of colostrum, uh, that their antibody level is lower in the colostrum versus a, a small amount. Uh, is there a way for veterinarians or on farm uh, for veterinarians to teach producers how to check to make sure that the colostrum antibody level is appropriate? Yeah, yes, there are. There's several different ways. Um, one is just appearance. When it, if it looks, you know, if it's nice and thick and got a little more color to it, it's probably good colostrum. And if it looks like regular milk, it's probably close to regular milk and not very high in antibodies. But that can fool you. And I'm a, I'm a fan of either using a colostrometer, which looks at the specific gravity. Um, most people are familiar with the, the colostrometer that, that you stick in a little uh, tube uh, flask and uh, where, where how far it floats up tells you whether it's good or not. Uh, there's some disadvantages to that, though. One is that they're very fragile equipment, and they're frequently they break easily. And then the the air that's introduced into the colostrum at harvest makes it lighter, so it makes it artificially worse. And also the temperature, uh, it's temperature dependent. Uh, so I think a refractometer is probably a better way to go. Um, and we want greater than twenty two percent solids. Uh, the research on that's pretty pretty sound, and I think it's a little uh, more user friendly uh, piece of equipment. Yeah, and those are readily available that you can purchase uh, and and uh, use those, have your producers use those. Again, make sure they're being calibrated and cleaned properly. That's uh, sometimes gets lost, I think, if those things are on farms. Make sure that uh, producers and, and, and their staff are calibrating and cleaning those refractometers according to the manufacturer's instructions. But a really great way to to make sure that the colostrum that you're feeding or banking is, is, uh, has appropriate levels of IgG. Um, so you mentioned quantity, uh, 10% of body weight is a goal. What are some tips for ensuring that calves get the correct quantity? And, you know, if we're talking about giving a calf a gallon, uh, a newborn calf within one to two hours of life, their ability to maybe suckle that amount from a bottle uh, that's probably a big challenge. So how do you consult farms as far as how that should be administered? Should we go straight to a tube? Should we feed them first and then tube the rest? What, what are some approaches? Well, I've seen lots of different approaches work. So I don't, don't, don't want to say you have to do one way or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, I like the concept of tubing a whole gallon because of efficiency and it just makes sure the job gets done. Um, but there are people that are that are opposed to tubing, and I um, don't follow my sword for that. And if they want to give two quarts uh, by by nipple, that that works great by bottle. Uh, and then come back in two to six hours and give another two quarts. The what a, the problem I have with that is if they have a strong uh, aversion to tubing and they're never going to do it, 
Some calves just won't get their colostrum. Um, there are just some that will not suckle that need to be tubed. So I think everyone should be trained in that, whether it's the first choice or the second choice. Yeah, and I I know that was a point of frustration for me for some farms where they were just afraid of tubing. Again, I think that's an area where veterinarians, if they, if they don't want to tube, uh, one thing I learned from Mark Hilton is ask questions instead of providing responses. And so a great question for that is, why don't you want a tube? And some people are just afraid of, of, of drowning a calf or they don't like the calf to struggle or uh, um, something like that. So that's a great opportunity for veterinarians to train uh, dairy farmers and staff on how to properly tube a calf. And it's something that anybody can learn how to do. So another opportunity for veterinarians to be involved in these uh, colostrum programs. And we talked about getting it into calves within one to two hours. Uh, and then I've heard of a lot of different types of protocols on farms where, you know, they have that first feeding and then, okay, should we feed more colostrum the second feeding? Should we use, you know, uh, um, uh, pooled fresh cow milk, hospital milk? What are some What are some recommendations for after that first colostrum feeding and does that make a difference for the calf? Yeah, well, one, one point is some, uh, having a system in place to make sure that the uh, calves get both of their bottles. Um, I've seen it before where the calf gets its first bottle and then the truck comes to take the calf to the calf ranch before the second bottle gets fed. Mm. So it needs some way to mark the calf or put it in a different location where the workers coming to load the calves up to go to the calf ranch won't be, uh, won't be picking it up. Um, yeah, and then, uh, make a point, too, on when calves are bled for their antibodies. Uh, I've, some, some calf ranches are getting uh, uh, more likely to uh, pay premiums on good colostrum scores and make sure that they, when they bleed those, they're bleeding the calves after the calves absorbed all their colostrum. So after the calf is at least 24 hours old and probably a little bit older than that would be better. Yeah, and that's... Another opportunity for veterinarians to get involved in those calf ranches and, and assist them with, uh, you know, developing those programs for uh, bleeding calves to get their, to get their antibody scores. Uh, we talked about squeaky clean, um, and, you know, I personally uh, have seen where we increased the amount of colostrum that was going into calves, and then... Uh, I'll say I caused a massive wreck because I forgot about that cue. I forgot about squeaky clean. They're feeding dirty colostrum, and now all they did was uh, increase the inoculation dose to the calves. Uh, have you seen that, and, and, and how can we make sure that that colostrum is squeaky clean? I have seen that. I was so proud of myself one dairy a long time ago. They had poor colostrum scores, and they had a salmonella Dublin problem, and the calves, you know, a lot of scholars the first couple of weeks of life. And I did thought I did a great thing teaching them how to tube their calves and tube a whole gallon. And we went from having sick calves to having dead calves. And the problem was the, the, uh, they mucked the milk into a 10 gallon can that sat out all night in the breezeway. And instead of giving these calves a half a gallon of, uh, of a bad classroom, we gave them a full gallon right away. And it made things worse until we fixed that problem and got the the proper cooling uh, in place to get that colostrum cold instead of uh, outspoiling. 
So if you think about the gut, what it's happening to that calf when it's first born, it's wide open for the antibodies to be absorbed. So it's also wide open for the uh, toxins and other things the bacteria are making. And so it's uh, really important that first day of life for that calf to have nothing but really clean, good colostrum. Uh, and of course, the bacteria in there comes from all the normal places, right? It's hard to have total, uh, it's hard to have the classroom totally free from fecal contamination, uh, workers' hands, anything that comes from the equipment that's been dirty. Or if the cow has mastitis, it might be inoculating it some. And of course, it doesn't take it very long to, to multiply. Yeah. And how, how can we measure that cleanliness of colostrum? We talked first about, you know, uh, just watching and making sure that they're collecting the colostrum in a sanitary manner. What about once that colostrum is harvested? Are there areas where veterinarians can monitor that? Yeah, one is just taking the the nipples off the bottles and smelling it. And if it smells rotten, that's usually a pretty good teaching moment right there at the time. Um, but also using uh, the, the mastitis lab in your clinic to to do a, a, a plate count to look for total bacteria. Uh, is also a very good way to do it. Yeah, yeah, easy test and and uh, yeah, and 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 the the, the the if you bring them the plates and show them the plates mm. and say this is what I grew out of that colostrum, but it's just a very powerful learning tool. Absolutely, I've done that too. Take the plates to the farms and let them uh, look at that. When you open that up, it it smells horrible, and uh, uh, that's a that's a good good tip. And then we also have the cleanliness of the equipment. Um, how can that be measured? How can we assess that? We can look at it, uh, but also how, is there any type of test that we can do on the equipment? Yeah, I think uh, looking at it's the first thing to do. And uh, it's not uncommon on this type of equipment to have uh, milk stone and other buildup, uh, some biofilm built up. And, of course, when the biofilm's on there, it's really hard to get it clean. Uh, so you can swab those surfaces and put them on a plate and culture them. Um, and also you can use a luminometer, which is a fairly new, uh, uh technique for looking for ATP. Um, uh, there's ATPase in there and if the bacteria are dead, the ATPase is gone. And, uh, and I, I like, I like the fact that it's based on the firefly, uh, <laughs> uh so kind of a nerd that way on technology, but, uh, they're, they're kind of expensive, uh, but food, food industry uses them a lot. And, uh, they can be a very powerful tool to, to demonstrate immediately that there's an issue with cleaning. Yeah, uh, I agree on that. I, I did use a luminometer in practice, and really uh, it, it, it uh, just using that makes people want to clean the equipment better. And by equipment, you have to look at anything that touches colostrum and the calf. Make sure that you're checking the, the, the tube feeder, you know, all those things. Make sure that – and. These things need replaced too, right? We get used to replacing our our liners in the parlor and our and our milk hoses and things like that, and then we we don't routinely. Have you seen where dairies don't routinely replace their their tube feeders that are scratched and damaged, etc.? I have, yep. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and a lot of, some some places don't have the proper equipment to to, to clean those things, right? To get into those tubes, you need you know special brushes that milk uh, supply companies can sell you, um, but they don't have them. You can guarantee they're not cleaning them. That's where a, a luminometer can really help you down inside those uh, tube feeders and 
and inside the ferrules on the, the uh, harvest equipment, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, <laughs> relating colostrum harvest to milking systems and then talking a little bit about uh, 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 temperature and cleanliness, you know, we're used to doing these types of, of uh, uh, you know, cleaning uh, on our milking systems, but not the parlor. What, what do you see during audits where cleanliness is, is an issue and where it can be improved? Well, you, you make an interesting point there about the, the, the parlors. Frequently, the, the, the colostrum is harvested in the hospital barn. Uh, sometimes it's the regular parlor, but uh, if it, the hospital barn, in my experience, is sometimes ignored. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the equipment dealer comes, it's not the pulsators that get checked. Uh, when they work up a uh, cleanup problem because the co-op's complaining about the bacteria count being high in the milk or a high lab pasteurization count, it's not the hospital barn that gets checked. And in my opinion, it should be checked as regularly as the other barn. Um, uh, but yeah, there should, should be, uh, training and the proper cleaning of all the equipment. Uh, I remember one particular dairy had a, uh, had the gaskets all lined up. They had five gaskets and they lined them up, uh, perfectly in the clean vet, the cleaning vet. And because they were lined up per- perfectly, there was no space between them for the water to ag- agitate around. So after was the cleaning, there was no, uh, well, there's there's lots of milkstone and lots of uh, curdles in there. Uh, so I show, show a picture of uh, a dishwasher that had two spoons on it close to each, to each other that were the, uh, they're up against each other that had peanut butter on them. They just won't get clean in the dishwasher. So the same, the same thing goes with uh, washing your art equipment. Yeah, that's that's so true. Again, another area where veterinarians can get involved and make sure that you develop a protocol for cleaning uh, the equipment, not just the 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 milking equipment that's harvesting the colostrum, but all of the other equipment that that is associated with that. Because, you know, as Philip said, once that biofilm and milkstone gets built up, there's no way that you're going to be able to. Uh, uh, harvest colostrum uh, cleanly uh, using equipment like that. And we, we also, the other thing that I, I, I see so commonly or I saw so commonly uh, was harvesting the colostrum like you gave your example uh, of breezeway cooling where it, it's sitting in the bucket or it's sitting in, in, in a vat and just sitting there. And we know that you know, I, I've been at meetings before where producers are getting calls because uh, uh, their cooling system is broken and it is a disaster. And so we know what that does when we don't cool milk from body temperature, you know, down to 36 degrees. What happens to the PI count and the bacteria count in that milk? Same things happens to colostrum. What are the conversations that we should have with producers to make sure that that uh, colostrum is getting chilled and how can they accomplish that? Yeah, I've seen several... Uh, very innovative ways that the dairymen come up with to cool their colostrum. And it, it's uh, actually kind of fun to work with them on that. Um, one thing you could do is you could freeze ice ice bottles and put it in the bucket that the, the colostrum's coming into, the, the harvest pail. Uh, that helps decrease the temperature right away. Um, the s- several customers I've worked with have... Uh, worked with their equipment dealers and come up with a little plate cooler just for the colostrum 
with a little pump on it. And it's pretty amazing how effective that can be. The, uh, the colostrum goes from being cow temperature, about 100 degrees, down to 36 degrees in just a matter of a minute or two. Uh, and you don't get very much of a chance for bacteria to grow it that, that, that way. Um, one of my pet peeves is actually people that stick colostrum, well, they wait, they, you know, they, they harvest it. It's been sitting in the pail in the breezeway. Might be sitting there for a half hour or an hour until the other workers come to pour it into the, to measure it and pour it into bottles. Put it in the bottles and put all those bottles, let's say there's 10 of them, into a little refrigerator. And if you put a thermometer in those little, little uh, in those bottles, and I, and I suggest you do that, it's amazing how slow that process takes. Mm. It could be in there six hours and still be above 60 degrees. So during that whole time, it uh, can get really uh, a lot of bacteria growing. So it's really important to have some other system besides just counting on the refrigerator to get it cold. Yeah, and I think that is a, a very uh, overlooked area on a lot of dairies that that cooling of the colostrum and the speed at which that occurs. And a lot of employees and producers may not be able to understand log growth of bacteria and the, and the doubling of that uh, bacterial population. Um, we're going to link uh, the calf notes from Attica Vet in our show notes. And I heard a presentation where they took uh, uh, ba- bags of coffee and uh, doubled the amount in each bag and showed here's, you know, 5,000 CFU of bacteria. And then just after a couple of hours, this is how many you have that a lot of times that visual presentation uh, helps employees uh, and, and, and dairy producers to understand how rapidly that bacteria grows when that milk isn't cooled uh, efficiently. So help your, help your farms develop a system to chill the colostrum, rapidly uh not just putting it in the refrigerator as as philip uh mentioned that that will take too long and allow for that uh bacterial growth to occur so let's talk now about uh pasteurization of colostrum or or treating colostrum to uh you know decrease the bacterial load in it what are some of our uh opportunities there and how can veterinarians get involved in monitoring that yeah so there's uh several commercial pasteurizers now that are set up for that. Um, I do want to make a point too, that it's really not pasteurization, mm-hmm. uh, at least not in the legal sense. Uh, pasteurization is 145 degrees uh, for 30, for 30 minutes. And at that temperature, uh, we would destroy the antibodies. Uh, Sandra Godden did a great job of titrating that where she pasteurized heat treated colostrum at a bunch of different temperatures. And she determined that at 140 degrees for 60 minutes, we don't cook the antibodies, we don't destroy the antibodies, and we do destroy a lot of the bacteria. And so uh, that's become pretty much the standard, 140 degrees for uh, for uh, 60 minutes. Um, so I like one thing I like to do to monitor that is uh, I have a hobo that's pretty easy to program. It only costs about 50 or 60 dollars, and it's waterproof. Uh, sometimes you got to be a little creative finding a place to attach it in the equipment, uh, but you can pretty much uh, make a nice little graph that shows, yes, indeed, it got that temperature. Uh, and of course, a lot of them you don't really have to do that. There's uh, built-in systems, uh, but some of the homemade systems you'll come across uh, will really benefit from that. Either they're they're not heating the classroom long enough, 
or uh, one particular one I looked at, the, the temperature was getting up to about 145 for a couple of minutes and probably destroying some of the antibodies. So I think that's a, a, a place veterinarians can get involved in. Uh, and then I think doing pre and post pasteurization of uh, cultures is good too, mm-hmm. just to show that it's working. And then also the people need to learn the, that uh, the pre pasteurization uh, counts are also important. If we start with spoiled colostrum, that's already has a high bacteria count. It's really hard to get it down to where we want it. And it messes up the pH and uh, you're more likely to, to cook it. Uh, it's really important for before we pasteurize it, that it's treated just like we, just like the milk that's going in your bulk tank for humans. It's going to be uh, pasteurized, but we still got to make sure the bacteria counts low before we even start. So I think yeah. Uh, yeah, veterinarians can do a lot there to help uh, monitor that system. <clears throat> Uh, yeah. Both with things they can do, you know, in their lab, but also just just by watching and uh, and uh, coming up with systems on the farm. Yeah, yeah. There there are a lot of opportunities here for veterinarians to get involved with the uh, with the calf program. Uh, Philip, let's talk a little bit about what are some tips that you might have for veterinarians who want to start colostrum audits on their client farms. Well, I would start with just asking questions, and uh, and uh, a lot of places will be, even if they're doing a pretty good job with their with their calves, would like to do better. Um, start with just watching uh, and learning the system, and then offering to do some of these other things with the, the cultures and the the measuring the temperatures. Uh, to me, it's a great way to get involved in the whole calf program, and. Uh, yeah, it's just a, it's just a, uh, yeah, I, one thing I, I do find working with the, uh, the workers, almost all of them are very happy you're there helping and showing an interest. Mm-hmm. Very seldom do you feel like, uh, you're intruding. Yeah. And, and, and treating sick calves is an incredibly frustrating and labor intensive problem on dairy farms and, this is one area where veterinarians have a tremendous opportunity uh, to be involved. I want to remind our listeners that uh, as, as Dr. Mark Hilton and I discussed on our podcast, stop chasing bugs. Uh, as Philip said, the root cause of all of these diseases that we see in the neonatal calf uh, can often be traced to a, a problem in the colostrum management program. And so that's the first place to go look. Routinely do colostrum audits. You do not have to wait for a problem to occur. There's ample evidence that calves that start off right uh, have a uh, healthier life, not only as a calf, but have more lifelong productivity uh, for that farm. So uh, make sure that you're, you're being involved in the colostrum program and do a colostrum audit uh, on your farms. We all remember the five C's, but remember the five Q's and walk through them uh, with your farms. Quality, make sure that you are measuring, showing your farms how to measure quality, make sure their refractometer is calibrated properly. Quantity, make sure they're giving 10% of body weight. Train them on how to properly tube a calf. Quickness. Uh, make sure that those calves are getting colostrum within one to two hours of birth. Uh, make sure that they're getting that second meal, as Philip said, before they're moved to the calf ranch. Uh, squeaky clean. Uh, 
I have found that to be uh, one of the biggest areas of opportunity for us as veterinarians. Make sure that their equipment is sanitized. Invest in the luminometer. Increasing your time on the farm will increase your billable hours and just routinely swabbing equipment uh, after a herd check uh, is a great way to make sure that the farm is uh, following your protocols for correct sanitation. Make sure you're watching the harvesting of that colostrum and then don't overlook that hospital parlor if that's where the colostrum is being harvested to make sure that the equipment is is uh, um, up to date and and. Uh, functioning normally, just like our, our normal parlor, and make sure that the colostrum is being cooled appropriately. Uh, there are a variety of uh, ways to do that, as Philip discussed, so make sure you're doing that. And then quantifying. Set up a monitoring program. This is something that can be done on farm, uh, and make sure that you're following those new higher standards of ensuring that calves have appropriate passive tra- transfer. And then finally, After that colostrum is chilled, make sure you're also checking the temperature uh, at feeding uh, to make sure that it is fed at body temperature, as well as all other milk feedings to that calf throughout its life while it's on milk. Philip, I want to thank you. I also want to thank uh, Elanco Animal Health for sponsoring this podcast. Philip, I really want to thank you for your time and expertise today in helping our members identify areas where they can be involved in colostrum audits. Thank you. Thank you, Fred.